what is the difference? What is the difference between Western um, philosophy and these indigenous ideas of, philosophy, of, of intergenerational justice that make people think about future generations constantly? What Christine fleshes out for us in this book is a practice and a theory of intergenerational environmental justice that is grounded in indigenous ontologies and that Christine compellingly demonstrates can offer more just and more relational imaginings of justice in this age of multiple overlapping crises. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, whatever time it is uh, where you are. To open, as always, I'd like to acknowledge that I am joining you on the unceded lands of the Gadigal and Wangal peoples of the Eora Nation. I'd also like to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from and offer my respects to elders past and present of these lands. I read recently that in a land acknowledgement at a um, very large, prominent U.S. university, the chair noted not only the unceded stolen land and the real owners, but also stated that the land was worth something like $3 billion. It was a way to illustrate the Western value of what was stolen and to put a starting bid, I guess, on what reparations for land theft would cost. But it was also a reminder of the way that colonizers value land and think about reparations in real estate value and cash. It's not just the land that has been stolen, but it's meaning stolen as well. It's integration with peoples and their everyday lives denigrated to a dollar figure and real estate. To acknowledge countries should not just be to acknowledge a people's name that is forever attached to it, to acknowledge that kind of ownership in a Western sense, or even to acknowledge the scale of the theft. We also need to acknowledge what Western thinking has done to harm the meaning of land itself and how that change of valuing land has also undermined the sovereignty and relationality of the people who've made these places homes for tens of thousands of years. So I'm on the land of the Gadigal and Wango. I'm on land that has multiple meanings and relations and values which must also be acknowledged and returned. And given the focus of Dr. Winter's book, I'm sure that this is a theme that we'll come back to today. So thank you all for joining us, um, wherever you are, whenever it is, for the launch of Dr. Christine Winter's new book, Subjects of Intergenerational Justice, uh, Indigenous Philosophy, the Environment and Relationships, hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute. The SEI is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together key thinkers from across the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. Our work is crucial in examining both thought and practice, and I am forever indebted to the Institute staff and researchers for all of their incredible work. So I'm David Schlossberg. I'm director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney. And I have had the distinct pleasure of being witness to this book's evolution over the last few years. I've watched Christine's thinking develop and crystallize, uh, become 
more confident and embodied. I've watched her work enter scholarly discussions of environmental and intergenerational and, and indigenous justice uh, and have a real impact on the way those concepts are being discussed uh, with real attention to the necessity of broadening environmental thought. This book illustrates the originality and the importance of Christine's scholarship on the limits of liberal justice theory, on the settler state's reliance on that theory, on critiques of individualism and thinking of intergenerational justice in a very linear, unidirectional way, on what it means to, to listen to and be materially part of country, and how that needs to shape our political conceptions. It's all there in one lovely package. Um, so let's talk about it, let's launch it, uh, and let's celebrate Dr. Winter's accomplishments. So here's how this will work. We have three incredible speakers. I'll shut up soon. Dr. Christine Winter, of course, but also Professor Joni Adamson and Dr. Sophie Chow, who I'll introduce in a moment. Christine will give a short overview of the book for the benefit of you who haven't read it. Uh, and then Joni and Sophie will offer their own comments on the work, all for about eight to 10 minutes each. We'll then have a short discussion amongst ourselves, posing a number of questions to Dr. Winter, and then open the Q&A to all of you out there. At any time uh, over the course of the next uh, half hour or so, uh, feel free to post a question. Please do it in the Q&A box. Uh, and everyone have a look at those as they pop up, vote them up if you want to hear a response. Uh, we also have a few questions that have been previously submitted with the registration, so thanks for those. Uh, and we'll have plenty of time, well, never enough time, but some time at the end to go through your questions. Uh, so let me introduce our very distinguished panel. Dr. Christine Winter is a lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and a postdoctoral fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute. Her research focuses on intergenerational, indigenous, environmental, and multi-species justice. Drawing on her Anglo-Celtic Maori cultural heritage, She's interested in decolonizing political theory by identifying key epistemological and ontological assumptions that are incompatible with indigenous philosophies. This is her first book. Joni Adamson is, is President's Professor of Environmental Humanities in the Department of English and Director of the Environmental Humanities Initiative at the Julie Ann Wrigley Global Future Laboratory at Arizona State University. She writes on the centrality of the environmental humanities to the sustainability sciences, the design of desirable futures, climate fiction and film, and indig indigenous literatures and scientific literacies. She is co-editor of the Rutledge Environmental Humanities book series, of which Christine's book, of course, is a part. Finally, Dr. Sophie Chow is a postdoctoral research associate at the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and the Charles Perkins Center. She's a member of SEI and soon to be uh, a member of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Sydney. Sophie's research thus far has focused on exploring the intersections of capitalism, ecology, and indigeneity in Indonesia, with a specific focus on changing interspecies relations in the context of deforestation and agribusiness development. Her current research deploys interdisciplinary methods to explore the nutritional and cultural impacts of agribusiness 
on indigenous food-based socialities, identities, and ecologies. So a very distinguished panel. Uh, and without anything further from me, we will turn to Christine to introduce us to her lovely book. Christine. Thank you, David. Tenakoto Katoa. Ko Fakapunaki Tamonga, Ko Tawairoa Tawa, Ko Takatimu Tawaka, Ko Nati Kahanunu Te Iwi, Ko Nati Hinimihi Te Hapu. Na Fano Mao I Raro Ki Te Korawai O Taranaki Monga, Ko Gadigal Te Iwi O Te Wahi I Noho Neao. Christine Turpilanoa. No rera tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. So it's really, actually this event is really humbling um, with you all, and to be honest, I am feeling incredibly overwhelmed. That said, I've just told you who I am, and I've located myself with my ancestors, with the mountain Whakapunaki, with the river Wairoa, with the canoe Takitimu that brought my ancestors to Aotearoa. I've located myself in my iwi Ngāti Kahanunu Kiwaroa and hapū or sub-tribe Ngāti Hinanihi. Um, and then I explained that my family um, grew under the cloak, under the, under the shadow of the great Monga Taranaki, and that today I live on Gadigal land. So, um, before we go any further, I acknowledge the Gadigal elders, past and present, for whom this land holds, you know, intergenerational ancestral connections. And I acknowledge the care and attention that they've given the multi-species community, sharing the space and through all time, in fact, through time immemorial. And all of those things influence the books, the book. All of those things influenced where I started and, and why I started this investigation. Um, so it, it began really back in the early part of last decade when I had been doing some work on the ethics of the um, Liberal and Labour Party's climate change policies. Um, and I can he I hear, but I can't hear, laughter rippling through the audience as you say, ethics of climate change policies. Well, yes, you're quite right. They were nearly ethics-free. But the, the more important thing was that, I, that throughout my investigation, I could not find references to future generations. And I couldn't find references to ancestors. And that really surprised me because every time you hear any group of Indigenous peoples talking about the environment or talking about intergenerational justice or talking about climate change, the refrain that is repeated constantly is for future generations. So why? Why is the, this, this disconnect? Why is it that in, in the liberal um, political framing, we don't hear for future generations when we're thinking about climate change and we're thinking about environmental justice, or even when we're thinking about indigenous justice. And why is it so prevalent within um, the, the everyday talking of indigenous peoples from around the world, and particularly in relation to these sorts of really gritty um, problems of justice? So I thought, oh gosh, I'd quite like to do a PhD. I wonder um, where I could do a PhD. This sounds like a really, really good, 
good place to start. Um, so I put, a, I put a pin in the map of where I live and I worked out where there was a university that I could walk to and there was Sydney University and then I had a look at, well, who the heck could um, supervise this? And I came across this guy called David Schlossberg. And he seemed like he, you know, this is, this is incredibly arrogant of me. He seemed like a guy who might be able to do it. Um, and as it turns out, yes, he was. So I shot him an email and I didn't hear anything back for some days. I thought, oh, holy cow, I've blown it. I don't know how to do this thing. I don't know what's going on. I haven't heard back. And then I got an email from him saying, sorry, been away. Look, come in and talk to me. So I walked in and the moment I opened this door, there was this flicker across his eyes. Those of you who know David knows that he can, he can hold a pretty stony face, but there was just this moment and you could see him thinking, oh, holy cow, I hadn't expected somebody so old. Um, but anyway, he rose to the challenge and quite frankly, I could not have written this book without David and nor the assistance of Alec Lefebvre, who was my um, co-supervisor. So thank you to both of them. So that was, that was the beginnings. And so I started, I've started the book and I started the project very conventionally by interrogating Western ideas of intergenerational justice. So what are the different theories of intergenerational justice that are out there? And particularly, I was interested in intergenerational justice and climate change. And you know that there aren't a lot. Um, there were people like Steve Gardner and Ed Page who were doing some work on it and, and, and a few others, but there wasn't a lot. And they seemed to be really... They were having difficulty grappling with it. And I, and I think, to be fair to them all, still are within the Western framework. Uh, so then the, ne the next thing is, okay, so that is the way that it looks like to the West. This is what intergenerational justice is thought of. And, and really one of the big problems is in the West, and this is something I explore in the, in the book, is that intergenerational justice was originally conceived as, as an idea that would assist the living, not gift too much to future generations. The idea was that future generations will always be richer, they'll have more technology, they will be better off than we are. So we, we, we must spend for ourselves, we mustn't save too much for the future generations who are going to be better off, because that's not fair. Well, of course, climate change is turning that on its head, and environmental, um, uh, you know, other environmental issues are turning that on its head. You know, future generations are not going to have access to the same resources um, as previous generations have had. So then how do we reconceive uh, intergenerational justice? So then, um, uh, you know, my original thought was around, well, you know, what is the difference? What is the difference between Western um, philosophy and these indigenous ideas of, philosophy, of, of intergenerational justice that make people think about future generations constantly? And so then I began to delve into the epistemologies and the ontologies. And there are some very, very clear cleavages 
And when I say cleavages, that kind of makes the divides um, much more extreme than they are. There are extremes. Um, so you have sort of extreme materialism versus um, a really, really um, strong land ethic. You have um, you have an idea that that spaces are just really just well places are just spaces that places to be used as opposed to that that deep sense of ancestral connection with a place that holds your history, that holds your ancestors, that holds the future, all simultaneously while you protect it and care for it. There are ideas around um, uh, individualism that David has already mentioned versus a, a sort of a collective way of thinking about the world. So if you're thinking on an individual scale, then you know, you want to look after yourself first and maybe your immediate family, but you're less concerned with the collective. Whereas from a collective perspective, you're more likely to think uh, intergenerationally. Um, we've got an anthropocentric view in the in the West. We think we think that the world is here for human beings and human beings can use it as they will. Versus a far more uh, a far more encompassing view that, that comes through indigenous philosophies that is more cosmological, that sees everybody, everything as being related. It's, a, you know, very much around relationship. And then the, the issues of time. So within the West, there is this sort of uh, discontinuous uh, temporal arc. We're just moving forward all the time. The past is in the past. We focus on moving forward, but really what matters is the present versus a much more continuous cyclical spiraling um, vision of time within um, indig indigenous philosophies. So what I do is look at some relevant existing case studies um, of indigenous experience of having their philosophical approach for the care for the land and care for um, multi-species um, uh, community inhibited by Western politics, Western political order, and by um, sort of the philosophies that underpin that. And, and during the course of writing the thesis, and, and then more importantly, it runs through the book, I realized, perhaps a little bit belatedly, that, that this was really an exercise in, in, in decoloniality. This was looking at the way that we move our thinking so that Western justice theories, and I emphasize the word justice theories, um, continue to oppress, continue to dominate, and therefore are unjust because they um, are not allowing for the flourishing of members of the, pol the polities. And I have a suspicion I'm probably up to my 10 minutes, so I'll just stop there. Thanks so much, Christine. Joni? So I'm joining you today from ASU, which is located on the lands of the Autum and Peeposh peoples of the Sonoran Desert of North America. And I'm just thrilled to be here today um, and, and really honored 
I've had the pleasure of meeting Christine in person on several occasions, and I'm just honored uh, to be here to be able to discuss this new book, Subjects of Intergenerational Justice, Indigenous Philosophy, the Environment, and Relationships. It's forthcoming, um, but actually it's not forthcoming because there it is right there behind David. Um, and that's the cover. It's, it's a really beautiful cover from Rutledge Press, uh, Rutledge Environmental Humanities book series, which is co-edited by myself, Scott Slovic, and Masami Yuki. And I wanted to just take a few minutes today to talk about why we at Rutledge um, in the Environmental Humanities series um, see Christine's book as such a phenomenal addition to our list. The Rutledge Environmental Humanities book series is preface, sorry, premised on the notion that the arts, humanities, and social sciences integrated with the natural sciences are essential to comprehensive environmental studies. And this is a pretty accepted idea today in environmental studies, uh, but we're still sort of working towards that. We're still sort of um, uh, supporting that idea. And we define the environmental humanities as a multi-dimensional discipline encompassing such fields as anthropology, political ecology, history, literary and media studies, philosophy, etc. cetera. Um, so Christine's book fit nicely, very nicely into that uh, definition. We're looking for books that cross traditional disciplinary boundaries, bringing the full force of multiple perspectives to eliminate vexing and profound environmental to topics. And so again, Christine's book really fit that, um, that, that um, category. Our book series has published 69 titles. So either you're 68 or 69, I'm not exactly sure, but 69 titles. And um, Christine's is among the latest. These books address topics from microplastics in the sea to hypertrends such as global climate change, mega extinction, and widening social disparities and displacement. They explore how we'll live on the planet undergoing tremendous flux and uncertainty with human cultures so, pre, uh, uh, pro, so prominently at the center of the transformation that has often been described as catalyzing a transition from the Holocene to the Anthropocene. And Christine's book does address this. So our readers include a wide audience of scholars and students, uh, citizens and policymakers, um, thinkers, but we wanted that audience to grow. We want that audience to be rooted in communities outside of academia, just as much as it is inside academia. We want our audience to be uh, rooted in more place-based knowledge keepers and change makers who are interested in generating not top-down knowledge, but co-produced grassroots knowledges that contribute to knowledge exchange instead of just the idea that, you know, um, knowledge is funneled uh, from the academy into the community. So it's, it's really important for our book series. Uh, uh, we, we really want to look for books that are um, um, contributing to the idea that community contributes to what we know just generally about environmental science as much as, you know, um, anything that any discipline that we have in the academy. So again, Christine's book fit really, really nicely into um, the kinds of books that we were uh, looking for. Her book affirms um, that 
exactly what she argues in the book, which is that too often indigenous um, communities are dismissed or not recognized as having the sophisticated, quote unquote, sophisticated understandings of planetary processes. So basically she's, she's showing us that that's just simply not true. So Christine's book is a model uh, in our opinion uh, for the kinds of books that uh, Rutledge at least is seeking to um, that are attracting this broader readership. And uh, as editors and as, as editors and consistent with our previous editors, and I want to um, emphasize that our previous editors were Ian McKelman and Libby Robin. Uh, so we hope we're continuing this um, tradition of making a, a conscious decision to prioritize traditional ecological knowledges, multi-species relationships and related topics as some of the primary lenses through which we want our books to, to um, look. Um, however, to date with, you know, despite the fact that we have 69 titles, Christine's is one of only a few that are looking through that lens and doing it so well. So I'll admit that as editors and specifically myself as an editor, I very much, I guess you could say, sort of pursued Christine and encouraged her to submit a proposal, especially after I read her article, Does Time Colonize Intergenerational Justice uh, Theory, which she published in Environmental Politics in January of 2019. I was convinced that a book-length project that expanded upon and further explicated the topics that she was articulating in that article, as well as her other research, was going to be important, important in some of the same ways that Robert Wall Kimmerer's book, Breeding Sweetgrass, has been. So in other words, I consider this book very ground shifting, just in the same way that um, Breeding Sweetgrass is ground shifting. I suspected that a book on these topics could be a tour de force, and my co-editors, co Scott Slovic and Masami Yuki, agreed. In response to some rather tough reviews of the original manuscript, now I just wanna tell you uh, some of the reasons why I admire Christine so much. Um, she got some pretty tough reviews in the beginning. Uh, so, you know, Rutledge submitted the book for review. She got four reviews and they are all kind of in some ways tough. And obviously in my opinion, the book was misunderstood and underestimated for exactly the reasons why she articulates so carefully the ways in which indigenous communities are often dismissed or misunderstood. But I was just so incredibly impressed, Christine, by the way you clearly, boldly, and kindly responded to the re reviewers' queries with your insistence on the validation of philosophic traditions of environmental justice outside of what the Western canon. You, you explained so um, well uh, why you were privileging indigenous philosophies and highlighting the value these philosophies have for solving global environmental problems. Um, so that comes across in the book, I believe, that um, Christine is a rigorous scholar, but she's also very kind, and she also practices the kinds of philosophies that she's writing about. So I was very impressed by the way uh, Christine took on these reviewers and insisted that the book would illuminate the deep ontological rifts between the philosophies that inform Maori and Aboriginal intergenerational justice and those of the West that underpin the politics 
and law of settler states. Um, her, her book was meant, and this is one of the things that she explains so well um, in, in, you know, to the reviewers, to be an exploration of what, quote, Maori indigenous theory in practice might look like. So she was trying to do something really original and different and something really needed, um, not just in the environmental humanities, but in environmental studies in general, but also in the public and in those communities that we're talking about. Um, she examined, um, she explained that we, um, sorry, she explained that she would examine contemporary cases uh, drawn from the courts, film, biography, and protest actions. And she has done this so very well in the book. Um, the finished book reflects exactly what I think um, we as editors um, expected, which is an excellent book of research and fieldwork um, that shows a, a, a writer and a research and, and a philosopher, uh, very determined, very curious, and very open-minded. It fulfills the promise, certainly, that we as editors at Rutledge um, saw in the proposal and many of the chapters, and in particular, I would argue chapter seven, walking uh, backwards into the future, something more than now are brilliant, in my opinion, not just because it is the first time an indigenous or Maori author has made an argument on time, but because Christine Winter is doing it so incredibly accessibly and well. So thank you so much for this time and thank you for letting me talk about this book that we're so proud of at Rutledge. And hopefully in the Q&A, we'll come back to some of these really brilliant concepts she's articulating in the book. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joni. And that's a good reminder to everyone out there. Feel free to pop your questions in the Q&A and we'll try and get to those in a bit. In the meantime, Sophie. Thank you, David. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I'd like to start by paying my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and emergent, and also to Gadigal kin, both human, animal, vegetal and elemental. A huge thank you to Christine for inviting me to share some thoughts on subjects of intergenerational justice a book that I see as vital to the world in all possible senses of that word. This book is vital in the way it so powerfully and poetically dismantles an array of entrenched assumptions within Western justice theories that have served to legitimate and also undermine their presumed universality. These assumptions include exclusionary and hierarchical ideologies of individualism and anthropocentrism, reductionist and instrumental understandings of materiality and property, linear and progressivist logics of temporality that together undergird and perpetuate the colonial project of suppressing, silencing, and sanitizing the philosophies, practices, and protocols, indeed the very being of indigenous peoples. In lieu of these dominant paradigms, what Christine fleshes out for us in this book is a practice and a theory of intergenerational environmental justice that is grounded in indigenous ontologies and that Christine compellingly demonstrates can offer more just and more relational imaginings of justice in this age of multiple overlapping crises. The book for me was also literally vital in the sense that its theoretical contributions to 
decolonial practice are first and foremost grounded in the granular textures of lived experience amongst indigenous peoples whose ways of being, becoming, and belonging are dynamic, transforming, and ultimately life-sustaining. Intergenerational environmental justice for Christine is being, it is philosophy, or rather it is being as philosophy, those many endeavors in Christine's pure and therefore always more poignant words to, quote, make sense of the world, what it is to be human, the structure and form of knowledge, right and wrong, and what it is to be in the world. Many of the stories that Christine tells in this book revolve around questions of consequential miscommunications, presumptions, impositions, and incommensurabilities that result in what Christine describes as a persistent communicative gulf between Indigenous and settler peoples who still talk past each other despite centuries of coexistence. This talking past each other is about moments and potencies not grasped, breakthroughs and dialogues not achieved, and voices and actions not heard or heeded that cannot help but make one wonder, what of the world and of the we if they had? What kinds of country and more than human communities of life would we be part of and not or not? What does it take for scholars like Christine to navigate the settler colonial present as an impasse and what is possible beyond it? And what does it take to inhabit multiple conflicting temporalities, those embraced and embodied, but also those imposed and institutionalized? Perhaps the most gripping aspect of this book for me is its intellectual and its political generosity. So Christine, you know, strongly challenges the intergenerational environmental justice canon by locating deficits not in indigenous life worlds, but rather in Western thought and ontology. So the lived experiences of injustice that have been suffered and also acted upon by indigenous peoples historically and in the present sits alongside another kind of injustice. That is to say, the injustice manifest in IEJ scholarship that continues to be theorized primarily within and from the epistemologies of liberal Western philosophy. As Christine admits in the book, her own use of scare quotes for the term philosophy as applied to indigenous peoples initially is itself very much symptomatic of the mainstream rejection of the very possibility of such a thing as indigenous philosophy. I've heard uh, similar comments from Western scholars who dismiss indigenous philosophy as, quote, just wisdom. Uh, for me, this not only speaks volumes uh, to the inability of some scholars to even comprehend the possibility of indigenous philosophy. Uh, it also says something quite troubling about their views on wisdom, which, frankly, I think we could all do with a bit more of. So why generous? Well, because in this book, rather than simply reversing the power asymmetries at play between indigenous and settler theories, Christine makes the compelling argument that all members of settler societies can benefit from embracing aspects of indigenous values and ways of being. The limitations of existing IEJ approaches as such speak not to an indigenous problem of failed alignment with Western ways of being, but rather to a settler problem of failed alignment with indigenous ways of being. One that, of course, does violence to indigenous peoples and country, but one that also impoverishes coexistent settler ways and worlds by imposing a fictive separation of the human from the non-human and of the individual from his or her or their constitutive relations. So in anchoring her theories of justice in the lived intergenerational coexistence of humans and non-humans for settlers and indigenous peoples, Christine invites some crucial reconsiderations of some of the most fundamental elements of social flows and flourishing, personhood, time, subjectivity, 
groundedness, relationality, and more than human dignity, all within a totality that includes more than the now, more than the individual, more than the human, and indeed more than the living. This moreness of indigenous being in relation is present throughout this beautifully crafted work, from Christine's description of her father's pilgrimage of reconnection to his homeland, to the philosophy of country articulated by Anangu elder Bob Randall, to Christine's recitation of her own personal Sakapapa, from which herself emerges as, quote, concurrently future generation, living and ancestor. Woven in the bodily hoursness of the self that is Christine are the traces of minerals from the volcanic soils of Taranaki, the wild winds driving salt and iodine into her lungs and skin, the vibration of the sandhills of Bell Block and the cliffs of Back Beach, the moss of mountain foothills, and the remnant of the cows, horses, cats, dogs, lizards, which at various times shared Christine's homes and life. What an expansive way of thinking and being in the world, with, of, from and for it. What a richer way of situating oneself in relation to others and other others. What a humbling and honouring way of reimagining living and dying and continuing across generations. What a gift for envisioning other modes of more than human becoming. And what an invitation also to rethink the relationship between ground-shifting scholarship, which Christine's book embodies, and more than human groundedness, which Christine's book story. story. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much again for the opportunity to continue thinking with and learning from your words and your world, Christine. That's beautiful, Sophie. Um, we are now going to each ask Christine a question and try and get into uh, a conversation. Before I get to mine, I just want, I want to come back to what Joni said about reviewers. And it gets to what Sophie said as well, the very different sort of reception that Christine's work has had. Um, in addition to those sort of very defensive Western traditional uh, responses, uh, how dare you interrupt the way that we think uh, about justice, Christine received a review once that was the most amazing thing I had ever seen, uh, and I don't think I'll ever see it again. And the quote, to start a review, and you know, early career researchers, <laughs> and even late, think about this. This article is a treasure. It made me want to cheer and weep. I don't think I've ever felt so grateful for a piece of writing a as a review. So yes, Joni, there have been those um, that are defending a very um, Western liberal space, but there are quite uh, a lot that are celebrating this. And Christine, you know what my question is going to be because, and it gets to what Sophie was talking about, I think, because you started this process in a very liberal, informed frame of mind. And your writing reflected that. And the first couple of chapters that you brought to me, very traditional critiques uh, of liberal theory. And then you walked in one day with the Wakapapa story and this shift, this physical shift in the writing and the thinking from this distant notion of justice out there to your reflection on the embodiment of this meeting in your own body and in the time of your family. That shift in the writing and in the thinking was significant. It was amazing. And it, 
it illustrated exactly the argument that you were making about the weakness of liberal theory. I mean, it's, it's like in Wizard of Oz going from black and white to color, right? At this one point in time, there's just this immense opening and a realization of what wasn't there. So I just, I, I want to get you to reflect a bit on that process, what happened and what was what, what was your thinking as you... <laughs> you know, as things blew up in that way. I can actually remember the moment I sat down and wrote the beginnings of that um, of that piece. And it was a moment w- where instead of um, struggling with the writing, instead of um, sort of resisting the process, instead of... Um, instead of being... <clears throat> Instead of thinking really hard about how am I writing this, I came to it from a different perspective. I came to it from the perspective of, okay, how do I explain this idea of the past, the present, and the future existing simultaneously? How can I do it in a way that will make sense to people? And the only way I could think of doing that was to make sense of it for myself. And to do that required embodiment. And so it's probably the fastest piece of writing in the whole book. It just happened. Um, And I've, I've reviewed it and I've changed it, I've shortened it and I've lengthened it and I've done various things to it and various pieces of writing. But it was a moment for me of, um, I guess it was a moment of impersonal and personal enlightenment as well. So I, combined with um, being at the stage in the program where I was beginning to have confidence. I was beginning to have confidence that what I had intuited about the differences uh, you know about the problems, as it were, around climate change, around environmental justice, around intergenerational justice. It was that moment when I was confident that yes, actually, this is ontological. This is epistemological. Epistemological. There is some really deep um, philosophical underlying problem here, and and it just. It just flowed. It just flowed. Um, and I, I think the other thing that was really important to me and, and has been throughout the project, and this is to pick up um, on the point that Sophie was making about Indigenous philosophy, was that I wanted to to demonstrate that, that one, that this there is such a thing as Indigenous philosophy, that all people actually think very deeply about what it is to be in the world and what it is to be human and what our obligations and our duties are. But I also wanted to show simultaneously that even though um, the the Western philosophical thought, the, the enlightened thought, has been proffered, maybe forced on indigenous peoples around the world for the last 600 years in in Aotearoa, 150, 200 years, that indigenous philosophy still resonates, that it still lives, 
that when offered the choice between two philosophical paradigms, the indigenous philosophy still has traction, that it still is meaningful in people's lives, and that in fact it offers something, if not better, at least different, that is, um, that is important. And therefore, it, we need to, I needed to find a way of showing why, why it still resonates and how it can resonate. Sophie, do you want to follow up? You had a question. Yeah, I, I, the book is not primarily about science and technology. It's about the law. Um, but there was a section that really struck, stayed with me. And it's where you talk about science, technology, Christina's poor substitutes, um, for indigenous peoples who consider non-human beings as kin history is in place and cultural continuity as dependent on environmentally protective practices and stable physical connections. And so I would love to hear you speak more about um, where you see the possibility for cross-pollinations across indigenous and secular science, uh, as exemplified, for instance, by the work of indigenous plant scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, are there ways in which the law alongside science technology can or are being brought into conversation with one another in ways that can counter some of the deeply problematic assumptions in, in much of Western thought um, regarding the supposed timelessness or stasis of indigenous uh, ways of knowing and ways of being. Thanks, Sophie. I think that's almost a book in itself. It's a really interesting, um, a really interesting publication. Um, my, my, I'll just go back to the comment about science and technology being poor substitutes. The reason for that phrasing is, as I said in the introduction, the Western conception of intergenerational justice, it really pivots on this idea that, that technology, science, and money will ensure that future generations are okay, that they are better off than we are now. So what that is doing is discounting um, in multiple ways. If we think about the um, the, um, the government's measure of cost-benefit analysis where they discount the future because science and technology um, are presumed to make people better off in the future. But it also discounts the fact that large tracts of the earth are being destroyed, that future generations actually won't have access um, partly to to the to the to the leisure that means that you can create technology because we're going to be grappling with so many crises one on top of the other um, whether you know We've seen it around the world in this last two years with COVID. We've seen it around the world this past two years with uh, forest fires. We've seen it around the world in the last two years with extraordinary flooding events. We know that there are deep and um, possibly irreversible droughts occurring now. So... What is the good of technology and science when people will just be grasping for food, just to live, to find a space where there's peace and tranquility? So that's part of it. The second part is the, the 
I guess, and you know, I don't know quite know where to go to this. That's why I say it could be a book. Um, there are a number of here, things here, but when you know the land, when you are a member of a community that has lived in the same place for 2,000 generations, as is the case with a lot of the First Peoples of Australia, you really know how to read and how to engage with that environment. But also your ancestors are in that environment. Your ancestors are part of that environment physically in that their bodies have been returned to that environment. But also the stories of those ancestors, the care those ancestors from those ancestors, the knowledge from those ancestors is embedded in that place. And what they've taught you about who you are as a person in relation to everything else on the earth. And that I think is absolutely critical here, is this understanding of who human is in the environment. And science and technology keeps us I was going to say at one pace, but actually it's probably ten to a hundred paces away from our non-human kin, away from the earth itself. It allows us to, I don't know, wake up in our air-conditioned home, get into our air-conditioned car, drive to our air-conditioned office and go back to our into our air-conditioned gym before we go back home. So you have no engagement with the outside world at all. You have an illusion of control. Um, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I'm going this. I think, I think that this... This, um, I, I think this is a very important thing if we are to, an important set of concepts, if we are to lead the world beyond the crises that we're witnessing now. Thanks, Christine. And we are going to move to audience questions soon. But before that, I want to give a chance uh, to Joni to ask a question. Thank you. Um, this question, I think, builds probably very nicely on Sophie's question, and maybe is just sort of extending it a little bit. Um, I'm really fascinated with the title of chapter seven, which is walking backward into the future, because uh, as we see future studies is becoming such a big, um, you know, interest around the world. Uh, my university just, um, um, you know, uh, renamed the Global Institute of Sustainability, global, the Global Futures Laboratory. So people are thinking about futures and future studies, um, but your book is speaking really so provocatively um, to, you know, the aims and goals of, of, of future studies. And so, so in thinking about the title of uh, chapter seven, I was just uh, wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what you mean when you uh, write, uh, when time is understood as synchronously past, present, and future, intergenerational environmental justice is released from intergenerational com competition. So I think that's a little bit about, I, I think that's very much what you were sort of speaking uh, to Sophie about. Just to, uh, so, so this is sort of asking you to just kind of expand on that notion of intergenerational competition and the ways in which that intergenerational competition makes 
sort of liberal theories of justice um, support knowingly or not the displacement of indigenous law and governance in preference to settler law and governance. Thanks, Joni. Um, so uh, walking backwards into the future is a, um, is a phrase oftentimes used of Māori. So Māori describe themselves and are described as a people who walk backwards into the future. In other words, what one does is one holds the past um, as important and as a source of information for how we craft where we're going into the future. And in doing that, you're doing a number of things. You're learning very quickly from past environmental mistakes. So, yes, there were uh, extinction events. Um, all Indigenous peoples are, um, are responsible for some forms of in, uh, an extinction events. But they learned. You hold that, you remember that, and you know that an extinction event is an extinction event, and you don't want that to occur again. Um, it also means that you are very cognizant of what your ancestors have done for you. And you're very cognizant then of carrying that gift and thinking about what you, what you are gifting to future generations or, uh, you know, the converse, what you might be doing to restrict their future. So that's the use of the term and why I use that term because it, it, it really brings um, into our discussion a, a different uh, way of thinking about time and of thinking about future studies in that it's not tied just to this idea of the progressive arc, of the past being past, the present being um, fleeting to some extent and the future being where we're going and the future being something that is always better, that the present is not good enough, we want more, we want to go further, we need, we need more. So this, this, you know, so I think that that phrase really encapsulates all that, all of that and leaves you wondering constantly as you live in the present, you know, will I be a good ancestor? Will I be remembered? as a good ancestor. And I think that that's, that kind of changes you, the way you view the world quite significantly. Um, oh, I was just going to reflect on the fact that, you know, we, we, we think about current future studies and we think about technology and we think about being a good ancestor. And it just reminds me that when the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built here in, in, in Sydney, clearly, the, the government was, was pounds, literally pounds away from bankruptcy. But they saw that as an important contribution to the present and to the future. And we kind, we seem to have lost that sort of concept of, yes, we'll take Will take risks to um, you're out of respect for what our ancestors did. They built that harbour bridge. You know what sort of legacies are we creating? And instead, it's become more of a take, take, take. Uh, now, well, you're, 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 I was going to go, I'm going to have a, a, just a few thoughts about future studies. Um, 
I'm really disconcerted by a lot of the future studies works that seem to be focused on, again, on technical solutions instead of thinking about, well, what is it we're doing right now that is, in fact, um, limiting the future? Um, and I'm also concerned about ideas that indicate um, that it's okay, you know, we've, we've complete, we're, we're close to having completely destroyed the Earth, so let's go to the moon, let's go to Mars, let's continue our colonial project somewhere else. Um, we, you know, we've run out of iron ore. Oh, well, that wasn't because we used it up too quickly. Um, that's fine, we can just get it from meteorites or meteors or whatever it is that people are fascinating or uh, thinking about, or the very, very deep ocean floor. All of that, though, completely disregards the fact that there are a whole bunch of other ways of viewing the world. And if you continue to act like that, and if you continue to use those ideas to dominate other philosophies and other ways of being in the world, then you are perpetuating injustices. If it's not done with reflection about why it is necessary for us to have an institute of future studies, which is because we've buggered up the world now, excuse my English, then you're just going to perpetuate injustice. So Christine, um, I'm going to push you a little bit on the time question uh, uh, because there's a good question from Lisa Ellis there, just to frame it a little bit differently. But um, let's try and um, have some shorter answers so we can get through a number of these questions. We've got about 15 minutes. So um, Lisa uh, asks a bit more um, for a bit more reflection on one of your most important contributions uh, that your work represents, new Indigenous work that is in time looking backwards and forwards rather than an antiquarian or excavation exercise of something expected by Westerners to be static. So that, that's, it's framing that same question a little bit differently, uh, and maybe you can respond to that. So, uh, uh, hi, Lisa. Good to know you're here. Um, and thanks for the question. I, th I think the point here is that um, the, the past doesn't need to be something that is... Um, is viewed as antiquated, as you say, that in fact there are always things that we can bring from the past into the future. And in terms of the second part of that question, I think it's really, really important for people to realise that Indigenous culture is not, is not something that is um, positioned on a ranking of cultural value that is pre-modern. It exists now, here, in the present, which as far as I know is the modern period. It is alive, it is extant, extant it, it, it resonates. It's not something that existed until the moment of colonial settlement and then became something that was arcane. So that's... That leads to another question here, I think, uh, and this one's from Kim Gordon. Can you reflect more on how Western settler colonial peoples can fruitfully and respectfully engage with Indigenous philosophies and ontologies without colonizing and appropriating? Right? How to acknowledge and shift Western worldviews without 
endangering or again just mining uh, I would say indigenous perspectives yeah this is a really difficult one and um, I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination I think it's very important to read indigenous scholars on indigenous matters I think it's very important to cite indigenous scholars I think it's very important to include Indigenous scholars within your curriculum, within your teaching. Hello, I've just got some sun coming on that's made me go all ghostly. Sorry about that. It's on my um, it's on my keyboard. Um, it's also very important to consider that if you um, are talking with Indigenous elders, so the um, so the professors of Indigenous uh, communities, that you acknowledge them as well. And then I think my final piece of um, advice, which comes from um, a very young and very fiery uh, Aboriginal um, leader here in, in, in Australia, a woman called uh, Marua Johnson, who's just, I've just got so much respect for, learn to be led. Just learn to be led. Uh, that's great and really helpful. And ask a question um, from our friend Sarah Weebe, uh, which shifts a little bit uh, and asks the multi-species justice question. So how would you characterize the current debates and discussions in the emerging field of multi-species justice and your book's contributions to those conversations? Mm, hi, Sarah. Thank you. That's interesting. This book didn't start out as being uh, with an eye to multi-species justice at all, although because it's looking at Indigenous conceptions of environmental justice and intergenerational justice, and because it's looking at Indigenous life ways, of course it's multi-species. Um, you know, that, that is the is just inevitable. One, one is part of a multi-species um, community. Um, so I, I think it contributes um, it contributes in that it's identifying two things. One is that multi-species justice is actually already well conceptualized, uh, just outside of the Western canon, that it is nothing new. Um, and I would encourage all theorists of multi-species justice in the Western Academy to reflect on that, to reflect when they say, um, when they are attempting to conceive of multi-species justice within the parameters of existing Western philosophy, that there are existing theories of intergenerational justice that actually require you reconceiving some of those foundational ideas of what it is to be in the world. Well, let me follow up Sarah's question with something I was going to ask, and then I want to get to some more practical questions that are here as well. But um, what about the contributions to environmental justice? I mean, one of the things that you do talk about uh, in the book uh, are some of, uh, and, and reflections since the book, uh, are um, ways of rethinking uh, and expanding ideas of environmental justice, the limitations of the kinds of frameworks that I've used in the past. Uh, and um, so 
I mean, really, there's so many contributions of the book in Indigenous thinking and intergenerational justice and multi-species justice. This question is more specifically about environmental justice. So, David, as you know, environmental justice has been largely about the relationship between humans and the environment in the sense that it's been looking at the harms done to humans by the release of toxins or by ecological destruction. So it's very anthropocentric on the whole. And my work and work like pe- by people like um, David Pello are opening that up and saying, look, environmental justice isn't just about the human. It's actually about the human and the non-human. And that as long as we continue to keep this sort of moral divide, this divide between the moral human and the animal human and the human and the animal, then there will be no environmental justice because we are one with and one of the animals of the non-human of the you know of the of the world. Um, so I think it moves environmental justice beyond the anthropocentric particularly. So following up that, a question from Alex, um, who asked specifically whether you can expand on the importance of relationships in the work, given it's one of the key themes in the title. Because that is exactly on the multi-species and on EJ, that is a major contribution as well. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, And thank you for your contribution to this book. It was amazing. It does follow exactly from that last question from David about environmental justice. Relationality is important because the indigenous understanding of who one is in the world involves relationships with the non-human world as well as with the human world. And then I want to break that out into two aspects. Our relationships as humans with each other allow us to be human. So interhuman relationships are absolutely vital. We, we could not and cannot exist outside, outside of relationship. You know, even to some extent, a hermit up in the mountain is in a relationship with something. They're in relationship with a god or with their own reflections. But more importantly in that, than that, if we are to exist, we have to be in relationship with our environment, even if it's just the way we breathe in and we breathe out. We are dependent on our relationships with our food systems. We are in, dependent on our relationships with our material flows. And if we review those as relationships, then rather than just as being um, uh, things that we have in the world, if we view them as relationships, then we, then we are more inclined, I think, Alex, to interrogate the what we bring to it, what our responsibilities are to what we are doing and to what we are receiving. And I think that's really, really critical to, to really um, to reflect very deeply on, on our impact in the, in the world and our impact on those relationships. So I think this will be the last question, given the time, and we only have about uh, two or three minutes for the answer, so maybe a brief one. But it's an important one, um, and this is from uh, Mel McCree in Wales. Uh, so I don't know if they're actually out there right now. This is an, a question we had 
before we started. What examples, because I, and I'm asking because I know you've addressed this, what examples do you know of indigenous knowledge of intergenerational justice that has made it successfully into policy or wider practice? Uh, and they're doing some research because there's a, a, an act in Wales going through the UK Parliament about the well-being of future generations. So the most obvious, well, it, it, the obvious and not obvious cases are the um, the Ecuadorian and Bolivian um, rights of Mother Nature in their uh, constitution and in law. Uh, so actually including the non-human realm into uh, the legislative framework so that you have to uh, be aware of the rights of the non-human realm. Now, the moment you do that, you are including the intergenerational. If you think of a tree, which is a thousand years old, maybe has another thousand, two thousand years to live, then when you are thinking about your legislation, when you're thinking about the way you are, you are working in the world, then you must be thinking in that, that being's time as well. You must be thinking for that being. And then, of course, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there is the, uh, the Te Awatupu, the Whanganui River, and the Te Orawera, a, a, a sort of an expansive uh, range and lake system, have both been uh, granted uh, legal personhood. So it is one of the pieces of leg legislation frame it, you know, the... the um, the entity is now responsible for its own self-management. Um, and in doing that, again, you see, you've got, you've got from time, the beginning of time through to the end of the time, end of time, caught up in that one person. And so you must think intergenerationally. And the Monga Taranaki is about to also receive that personhood status. And other places around the world are doing the same thing. So India's done it, Bangladesh has done it, um, and so forth. Thanks, Christine. Um, look, we do need to wrap up. And um, in closing, I just want to uh, join with my friends here in collectively launching uh, this wonderful book from Christine, Subjects of Intergenerational Justice, Indigenous Philosophy, the Environment and Relationships. Uh, go and get your copy, get your university library uh, to get a copy, uh, teach it, use it, think about it, respond to it. Uh, and thank you uh, to Christine uh, for, uh, for writing this, for sharing it, for getting it out there. So I do want to thank all of our speakers, uh, Dr. Sophie Chow, Professor Joni Adamson, uh, and Dr. Christine Winter. I want to thank all of you, of course, for joining uh, us. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, uh, like I said, get the book uh, or have your library order it. Uh, we at SEI have two more events, two uh, left in the year. You can scan those QR codes right there uh, to register, or uh, I believe... Uh, Genevieve is uh, putting links in the chat as well. Stay up to date with our other upcoming events and news out of the Sydney Environment Institute by subscribing to our monthly newsletter. There's another link in the chat. Follow us on Twitter uh, or on Facebook. SEI has a big year planned for 2022 uh, with new projects and people, and we look forward to seeing you all again uh, after these two last events and then a nice, long, restful holiday break. Uh, a huge thanks to Genevieve, uh, for, uh, Genevieve Wright for all the organization that has gone into this and the rest of the staff uh, at the SEI. 
uh, and we will see you soon. Congratulations to Christine.